Welcome to FACL, Ontario's podcast. FACL is a coalition of Asian-Canadian legal professionals working to promote equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian-Canadian legal professionals and a wider community. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, listeners. Welcome to FACL Ontario's COVID-19 podcast series. I'm your co-host, Michelle Cito, broadcasting live from my condo home. And I'm your co-host, Andrea Lee, broadcasting live from home as well. We have witnessed and continue to witness the devastating impact that COVID-19 has had on the health and economic livelihoods of our communities. This virus is exposing the endemic inequalities that have far too long been ignored. In the U.S., protests triggered by the killing of George Floyd are highlighting not only police violence against people of color, but also inequalities in health, education, employment, and systemic racial discrimination. Today, we are focusing on the impact of the pandemic on women, and particularly racialized women. We have two special guests on our show, Deepa Matu, Executive Director at the Barbara Schleifer Clinic, which offers legal, counseling, and interpretation services to marginalized populations of women who have survived violence, and Rochelle Kim, a staff lawyer at the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, or LEAF. Welcome to our show. So the death of George Floyd has sparked massive protests in the U.S., Canada, and around the world. How does this incident of violence and anti-Black prejudice impact Black communities and other ethnic minority communities who've experienced a long history of systemic racial prejudice and violence? Deepa, let's start with you. Sure, thank you. So the persistent and systemic anti-Black racism that undermines the safety and well-being of the Black communities, uh, by extension, actually is a cause of discrimination for racialized and vulnerable communities for far, far too long. So we all witness a system that perpetuates structural and direct violence against Black people in our communities. Uh, But what we also see in our work these days is that this sense of discrimination and prejudice that prevails also means that it impacts other ethnic minority communities, not in the same way because the the experience of black communities is very distinct. But if we take example of Asian community, more recently during the emergence of the COVID-19, I think we recorded the most hate crimes against Asian community, which represent over 30 countries uh, of originating ethno, ethno-specific origin. We also see uh, police brutality and persistent disparities in housing, in education, in income, in employment. Uh, at the clinic, what we see is something very distinct around over-representation of Black women and criminalization, as well as over-policing. Clinic has a project called Criminalization of Women Project, and we see persistent overrepresentation of Black women as well as Indigenous women in that particular project. So I think for the gender-based violence piece, what is really also important to think about with this, these pre-existing prejudice in our, in our legal systems is that too often women who really need to escape a situation of ongoing or potentially life-threatening violence they have a mistrust over the very system that they need to depend on because these systems have been guilty of prejudice for a very long time. And often when the perpetrators of violence against the very communities from where women are needing 
support or escape from in that moment. So this systemic and structural violence has a huge impact on women's lives on a consistent basis, as well as the options and choices that they can actually make when they, there is a huge mistrust of a system. So I'm going to follow up with that because there's been so much, you know, call for action for defunding the police or reallocating resources from certain segments of the police force to, you know, mental health or that sort of thing. So that when a woman who's calling for help, instead of calling the police, they call a different line, for example. What is the right approach going forward, given this rhetoric about defunding the police? I think... The defunding of the police, which is an ask right now that everyone is saying that should happen, what it is asking for is an ongoing accountability and transparency. That ongoing transparency and accountability can be built through having specialized, trained spaces for support. There are lots of international models that can be looked at, especially within the context of the gender-based violence, I would say there are lots of international models that can be looked at, which sometimes is the community policing model, which is, I mean, I wouldn't even say community policing model, I would say community accountability model, where there are experts who are mental health experts, social service experts, who can provide that support, as well as there can be you know, if the accountability and transparency needs to be built into the existing models, there could be specialized task forces which are focused on supporting gender-based violence and structural violence pieces. Currently, the status quo is not working, that's for sure. We all completely clearly understand the current legal and social systems uh, as created in the criminal justice framework are discriminating against Black communities and, and racialized communities broadly. But in terms of, I I can't give you the model that this should be the model. I don't have that to share. But I know that there are many, many good options out there that should be really seriously looked into uh, because there is no one size that will fit. I think we will need a lot of mixed modalities and we need to look into those community accountability frameworks. Roselle, did you have anything you wanted to add there or what your thoughts were? I wanted to check in with you as well. Sure. So first, I wanted to say the points I'm making, I'm speaking for myself and not necessarily representing the views of my organization. And if I'm representing the views of LEAF, I will make it clear during this podcast. I think what I wanted to note in this conversation when it comes to police violence that disproportionately impact Black and Indigenous communities, Canada is not exempt from, from that. So and we've seen that example in Regis Korczynski Paquette in Toronto, as well as Chantal Moore in New Brunswick, both of whom came in contact with the police because of mental health related reasons. And instead of getting the support that they needed, they ended up dead. So I think that one thing that is clear in this moment, as Deepa said, is that many of us are realizing what a lot of Black feminists, Indigenous activists, and abolitionists have been saying for a long time is that we need to look beyond our existing justice system if we want to hold people really accountable for their actions without causing further harm. And as Deepa also noted, the law has a history of failing to address the survivor's needs or ensuring that the cycle of violence stops. So I think that one other thing that's coming up with this call to defund the police 
is an opportunity for us to really imagine what justice can look like outside of what exists now. And we know that it's not working and it, it has led to the deaths of many people. And I think now is a time to really listen to the survivors and to the community more than ever. Thank you. We're gonna do a mini pivot and talk about how the pandemic has impacted women in the workforce especially racialized women. Rizal? For sure. So the essential workforce is highly gendered. Some of the stats that I can say is that women represent 92% of the nurses, 90% of personal support workers, and 84% of cashiers. People that we have sort of now started saying is um, are heroes of our society, but in reality, they remain underpaid, and they're working under unsafe conditions and are at higher exposure to the virus and face a lot of uh, risk because of that. So uh, this workforce is also very racialized on top of being gendered. So I think having an intersectional feminist recovery plan is really important to ensure that the women who are on the front lines, especially the racialized women, are not left behind. And we're starting to see from the May 2020 labor force data from Statistics Canada that women with children under 18 have already been shown to have worked less than their male counterparts. So it's really critical to, you know, include things like childcare and a basic income in order to make sure that the that this workforce recovers equitably. And I think I also wanted to note that, you know, we have the on the one hand we have women without childcare workforce and on the other hand we have another reality of the women in the essential workforce who a lot of whom are black women and women of color who are continuing to work under unsafe and underpaid conditions so it's really important to i think give nuance to that situation where we're starting to talk about the she session where some women, yes, are being left out of the workforce and some women are being forced to remain in the workforce under safe, unsafe conditions. And we're seeing places like Loblaws, Metro and Empire announcing the end of the wage premium that they put in place for the grocery store workers, but the pandemic is far from over. So it's I think that it's really important to continue pushing for protection of the workers, uh, which includes, you know, fair wages, availability of PPE, and other legislation that ensures that they have safe working conditions. Thanks, Roselle. I don't know, Deepa, did you want to add to that as well? Uh, The only thing I would also like to add, I think, and all the points made by Roselle are are pretty uh, on point. The only thing I would like to add is that the migrant women's experience within that uh, context of being a workforce, which is almost like dispensable to the extent that we will ask you to stay in the confined conditions because we need you to stay in confined conditions. We will let you come in because we need you and we won't let you come in or we will make you go and not value your life. And I'm not saying all this for the shock value, but for the this is the reality. This is the fact uh, that migrant uh, workers' lives are almost considered not valued and almost considered that if this particular person doesn't work, we'll have another one. So they're almost like in exchange of what economic value they are going to bring in that particular moment. So so that I think is is definitely something which is 
an experience which is unique to to their location and definitely has not been paid enough attention by our policymakers in uh, thinking about all the solutions that are offered. Thank you, Deepa. And you know, as Michelle said, the pandemic is far from over. I think we're starting to see just today in China, they're worried about further outbreaks. So that could speak to our situation here in Canada for the next few months. And hopefully, you know, the the impact will not be as great, uh, but it could continue for several seasons. So going back to something that we were discussing at the outset, perhaps Deepa, you could describe the impact of COVID-19 on domestic violence against women in Canada. Yeah, definitely. I, and I think I before even I, I talk about the COVID-19's impact, it is important to know that how global the nature of uh, violence against women has been. So if we just look at a global stats of sexual and physical violence, the, the stats given to us by the UN is that globally 243 million women faced sexual and physical violence in last 12 months. So we are talking about 12 months prior to the COVID-19 starting. That's the scale of this global pandemic, which is violence against women. Saying that, why would COVID-19 situation and why would the solutions which were globally accepted for COVID-19, that was stay at home and, you know, stay in isolation, stay at home, do not leave your house, how that became a huge reason for emerging data that's coming out that shows that since that COVID-19 started, the reports of violence against women are going up. That is because of the reasons of that confined living conditions that are created by the lockdown. In, uh, in many situations, it also means that women have uh, more worries around their economic uh, security, which is money worries, the health worries, the the tensions and the strains that get accentuated in a cramped living condition. All of that goes into that uh, that emerging data that we are seeing. But what I would like to like us to think about is though that that emerging data was not a news for people working in the sector. For the people living in the sector, they always knew that if someone is asked to stay with their abuser uh, for any number of reasons, including health, that would just mean that there would be there would be potential for more violence coming into their lives. Other thing, which is something that we are not talking about is that that data is not complete. That data is really hidden. Even at this point, I think we haven't really seen the surge of cases. We haven't really seen the number of women who would come forward and seek help because they are still living in a context where they don't have jobs, as we just talked about. We talked about the impact on the workplaces or their jobs are very precarious. They are still very codependent in many cases on their very abusers, which could be their intimate partners. And there is less mobility overall uh, available to women. So for a lot of women, when they're exit planning, they're planning to leave the city or they're planning to leave the province. And all of those things are very limited at this point. Right. Thank you very much, Deepa. So I have a further question for you, Deepa, and, and that's with respect to how the interplay between domestic violence and immigrant 
newcomer women, especially those from the South Asian community. Could you speak to that? Sure. So the violence in a woman's life happens because of the the imbalance in the gendered relationships, right? So, so that's like the crux of what we see uh, and uh, what we call as, as violence. So this, these gendered power imbalances are further complex in a migration context. And why is that? Because now she, she's susceptible to all fine forms of gender-based violence, not only through the process of migration, but also as she embarks on this, what is we call a new immigrant journey, right? So some of the everyday familial context violence definitely comes with her process of settling into this new country, which is completely new to her. She doesn't know the systems. But there is also then structural violence that we started our conversation with, which is the racialization of the communities and, and the lack of racial justice and equity, which means that she has further barriers to access resources, which means her, her survivorship is longer as compared to a non-immigrant woman. And we have seen some feminization of migration level happening all over the globe, as well as in Canada, which means that a lot of women who are coming now to, the, to, to Canada or other, other countries which have these migratory paths, a lot of independent migrants are coming. But Still today, family reunification and marriage is is the highest number of processes which uh, women come into the country, which means that they have this interdependency created with the residential status with with the men who they get married to, or in either case, whether they're bringing them in or they're coming to the country through these relationships, and which makes them more socially isolated and more vulnerable to, to the abusive partner because of this Uh, interdependence of the residential status, which means that she's always constantly worrying about if I say something, if I come out, I'll be removed or I will have an investigation happening against me or I might get criminalized for actually speaking out. So those are all all the different factors which go in a migrant woman's experience. And although I'm speaking very generally about a migrant woman's experience, the South Asian communities' experiences are all reflected in this. This is basically what I just told you is all the women who are coming from the South Asian context are struggling with all of these factors, including barriers to language in many cases, although South Asia primarily was colonized by British. So there is the English is is very accessible in urban centers. But for women coming from the rural background, language becomes an, an additional barrier. Deepa, just building off of that question and perhaps going beyond the pandemic, we've talked about, you know, job insecurity and its effect on violence against women or living in confined quarters. And you just started to talk about it with language, but um, perhaps we could get your thoughts on what role does language, gender and culture play in violence against women? Sure. So... I want to say a couple of things about the culture first, and then I'll talk about the language piece around the experience of violence. So, so the culture of violence is violence, and it is patriarchy. So what, what sometimes happens is that when we are using culture as the, the basis of understanding, which is the right end point of entry to understand, but the minute we look at a minority women 
if they are minority or you know immigrant women as in this case and we try to look at the cultural reasons we are looking at almost like a homogenization of their experience and also we are trying to look at something which then for the mainstream society they can make a choice of overlooking the the factors which are playing out in their lives and those factors as we just discussed are all systemic structural factors so so therefore i always try to refrain from giving culture as a reason rather than looking at culture as a construct and trying to dismantle and see where racism actually inter- intersects with it because culture is also for a woman not happening in isolation anymore and it's a very personalized experience of culture and i give this very very simple example that i'm from from india and i was born in delhi and i can show you or introduce you to 15 other women who are born in the same city from uh, same country and they would understand culture very differently as i would because culture is introduced to you from their familial construct as well as their social construct so it's not one thing it's a very complex and layered uh, conversation so therefore i always like to clarify that point whereas the 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 language piece is concerned i think that's really important to remember because he, that's a barrier in terms of accessing services or trying to report it to someone or get help for because you can't now your knowledge is not different you know that what is happening to you is wrong but you don't have the right language or sometimes the right expression to talk about your experience of of violence and it's not only language i think we oversimplify when we say just language it's it's language it's expression it's lack of familiarity of how something is expressed so for that a simple example is that in canadian context people use the word i'm famished when they're hungry and in the context i come from i would only use famished if i was bankrupt and had no access to food so that's the the way you express your experiences is is very different for for women who don't speak english as their first language in canadian way that's a canadian context and canadian culture of speaking english as well which is different for people from different countries who speak english and i think one of the important factor which we don't talk about much is the mainstream service orientation which is very westernized in its construct and very eurocentric which sometimes also creates a barrier for women who do not speak english that's a great segue for my really our next question is you were mentioning that a lot of the channels or programs that are offered to such women in need are westernized and eurocentric so what kind of programs are better suited for newcomers to Canada even given this nuance of language for example are there current programs out there that cater to those needs absolutely there are there are great examples of services that are out there uh, so i come from a service like that we have over 200 languages available but we also represent ethnicity and and languages within our staffing which is from over uh, 30 35 uh, different kind of backgrounds so not only that we have language interpretation available through very well trained interpreters but we also in our staffing of people at the clinic we are also very mindful of what other diversity are we bringing in especially where there is direct client contacts 
I'm not saying that we are we are entirely reached our perfection, but it's it's a work in progress, and we definitely keep that in mind while designing our programming. Some of the other really great spaces of uh, similar examples is settlement services. Settlement services across Ontario and in, in some ways across Canada are designed around that very particular need of clients. It's a very client-centric approach, thinking about who is the population, who are we going to bring in a group setting to talk to each other, how can that be most accessible for, for newcomers. Many shelters, I can tell you, in last few years, in last 10 years, I would say, there has been a sea change in the way uh, the services is delivered to, to survivors within the shelter construct. And I think one of the important things which probably we should also think about, and because we were, we are doing such an uh, interesting layered conversation of employment and COVID-19 and pre-COVID-19 environment and racialization, I think it's really important to see where is the, the leadership of all the spaces. You'll observe that there has been a change in, in the leadership as well, which also then trickles down sometimes into the space and, and the way services are designed. I think all those saying that, one thing which is really important is that all of the services that are out there, whether I'm talking about accessible language services, client-centric services, settlement, shelters, uh, counseling supports, all of that comes from from a mixed modality or mixed bag of funding. So some are government-sponsored completely, some are you know, yearly pleading for private donations as, as Schleifer does. Some are 100% sponsored by, by the government through their uh, vehicles and designs. But all of us definitely are in a precarious environment consistently, which definitely creates a flawed structure for the social services at times. And, and that client-centric approach of that we will keep the mechanisms very focused on the need of the survivors sometimes get derailed because the system by design is precarious, which means that system by design is also surviving. And I think that's where some of the challenges lie in terms of keeping the programming and mechanics, the mechanisms very client-centric. Thank you, Deepa. So that was a Another great segue into the next question I have for Rosal. So we talked about creating spaces to protect women, including shelters and, and clinics. Rosal, as we are you know, heading into a more digital era, and, and I think the pandemic has actually driven a lot of these technological changes that we're seeing, how can we create a safe digital space for women who are seeking online help during uh, the COVID-19 lockdown? Sure. So I think the most important thing here is to frame this issue of safety in digital space as a systemic issue, as opposed to putting the onus on the individuals to behave accordingly. So as, as you've mentioned, I think the digital space has become a lot more important during COVID-19 because so many of us are working from home and you know, even though the social distancing measures are starting to loosen now, uh, we these rules where we couldn't see each other. So the digital space became a main space for many of us where we connected professionally and also socially. And of course, with, with the isolation, some of the violence that we've seen in the so-called offline world has also been replicated in the online world. So first, uh, we saw examples of 
Zoom meetings being targeted and infiltrated with misogynistic and racist messages. So examples of meetings and lectures where hackers sort of targeted lectures about race and also I think some children's meetings as well. I was a part of a town hall that was talking about the gender and impact of COVID-19 that was targeted and we were subjected to like racist slurs and misogynistic insults against the organizers. And I think what troubled me after this incident was some of the reactions where people said, well, they should have just, you know, put in security measures or they should have just looked out for themselves. And I think that, you know, of course that's important as well, but emphasizing the individual actions is sort of akin to the victim blaming that we see against a lot of survivors, you know, about how they should have behaved as opposed to seeing this as a systemic issue that we should all um, try to solve. So I think the question that, you know, we should be asking is like, how do we take care of one another so that everyone can express themselves freely and participate in digital spaces without fear? And this includes, you know, governments and tech companies as well who can regulate and set community standards. So that's sort of why LEAF is right now doing some research into this. We have a cyber misogyny advisory committee and a research report where we're examining how tech companies might be held accountable or liable for perpetuating some of these acts of cyber misogyny. And we're going to continue to think of it as, you know, a systemic one to be solved. So I don't quite know the answer yet, but I think the first step, as I mentioned, is to look at this as a systemic issue that we all have a responsibility to uh, take care of. You make a couple of good points there, Roselle. I think even the tech companies are trying to figure out themselves how to best address some of the comments and the misinformation that's circulating around the globe. Certainly Twitter and Facebook are taking you know, somewhat different approaches and Zoom has tightened up their security in the past weeks. So you, you bring a good point about requiring a broader discussion with the platform providers themselves and government. So thank you Deepa and Roselle today for joining us and shining a light on these issues. This was a very important discussion about how the pandemic is affecting women, and we're pleased that you were able to take the time to speak with us today. If you, our listeners, have any questions about this podcast, please do not hesitate to reach out to the Barbara Schleifer Clinic and LEAF. For now, I'll say goodbye and uh, thank our guests again for coming. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We invite you to check out our website at on.facl.ca and subscribe to FACL's newsletters and podcasts. If you have any questions, please contact us through our website. We look forward to having you join us again.